0: I was thinking through what might be advantageous for us, my mind kept coming back to Revelation chapter 2, the first of the seven letters that the Apostle John uh, had delivered from Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, for the sake of context, I'm going to start back in chapter 1, verse 12, and then we're going to read down through Revelation 2. Verse 7, and we're going to look together at verses 1 through 7 this evening. I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. The Apostle John, as you know, is in prison on the island of Patmos for his testimony to Christ and his ministry of the Word. And when he is there, he gets the greatest revelation. The Lord opens the heavens, he brings him up, as it were, into the throne room. He sees things that no one else had seen. And as he is being shown this heavenly vision, uh, his eyes are drawn to the vision of the Lord Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Christ here is the high priest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, or perhaps better translated, messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first, or your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was not alive in 1973, and yet I have basically been a son of the Presbyterian Church in America most the better part of my life. Um, we started attending PCA churches when I was about four years old. I was a member, I believe if I've counted correctly, of five PCA churches in four states, and I've pastored four PCA churches in four states. And every one of those churches was different, all of them very imperfect. You know that old uh, little joke, you know, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you're going to ruin it. Um, Every one of them very imperfect. Our Westminster Confession says even the best churches are subject to mixture of truth and error. And yet all of those churches needed a particular word from the Lord about where they were doing well and where they needed to grow spiritually. They needed Christ's commendations and they needed his criticisms. Um, I was recently reminded H.B. Charles Jr. Uh, put something online recently where he said, if the Apostle Paul visited the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> And if the Lord Jesus wrote an eighth letter in Revelation two and three to the church in America and to our respective churches, we'd be getting a letter because every church needs the scrutiny of the Lord Jesus. Every church needs his encouragements. Every church needs him standing in the midst, assessing their strengths and their weaknesses and giving them his counsel. Um. It's marvelous here. The Apostle John is writing here in uh, chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. This was one of the most privileged churches. The PCA has been a very privileged denomination. The church in Ephesus had some of the greatest pastors and theologians of the early church. The Apostle Paul had basically planted this church. He had stayed there for three years. He had taught in a seminary there. Night and day, five hours a day for three years, the Apostle John had spent time pastoring this church. This church was an exceedingly privileged church. You'll remember in Acts 20 when the Apostle Paul is heading on and leaving and he, he gathers the elders together. And that powerful interaction between the Apostle and his elders he had trained and their directives he gave them. And they were weeping because they wouldn't see Paul anymore. And Paul was weeping because false teachers were going to come in. And it was this powerful picture of the way in which the Lord was working in the church in Ephesus. And yet, when we come here to Revelation 2, we see that uh, the Lord Jesus still has concern for this church. And he's going to come to them. And he is standing in their midst. And he loves this church. And he knows everything about it. Just like he knows everything about every one of our churches represented here. There's nothing hidden from the all-searching eye of the Lord Jesus. And yet, he has a deep love for his church. Charles Spurgeon, listen to this, reflecting on this passage, said this, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Every church, rightly so called, is to our Lord a more sublime thing than a constellation in the heavens. Don't miss that. Every church... Is to our Lord Jesus a more sublime thing than a constellation in the heavens? Spurgeon says, as he is precious to his saints, so they are precious to him. He cares little for empires, kingdoms, or republics. His heart is set on the kingdom of righteousness, of which his cross is the royal standard. And so it is the most loving thing that the Lord Jesus can do when he comes to his churches and he and he brings his assessment of them. Here, as we look at this section, these seven verses tonight, I want us to consider just three things. First, I want us to consider Christ's commendation of this church. Then I want us to consider Christ's criticism of this church. And then I want us to consider Christ's counsel, the commendation, the criticism, and the counsel. We'll notice that the Apostle John tells us that here a messenger is bringing this message from Christ. Many of the old uh, Protestant theologians, you may not know this, uh, really took the, the reference to the angel of the church as to the pastors of the church, or to a messenger coming from the Apostle John and bringing the message to them. Um, if you really love the idea of each church having a special angel, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. But, but they had messengers that Christ was sending and bringing this message to. And notice that the Apostle John there in verse 1, he draws off of that imagery in part one aspect of that imagery of the Lord Jesus that he saw standing there as the great high priest in the middle of his church. And notice he says here the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now listen very carefully. The most important thing about any church is that Jesus is in the midst of it. Because if Christ is not in the midst of it, it is not a true church. I want to read this to you from Eric Alexander, who who is now in the presence of Christ, great Scottish Presbyterian. He says, The picture here is, of course, of the Lord Jesus in his glory, ceaselessly walking to and fro among his people and within his church. He is engaged in a constant care for them. This is the essence of the church of Jesus Christ. They are, as one writer says, the people of the presence. That's what you are. You are the people of the presence. If the Lord Jesus stands among his church, Alexander says that is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. And it ought to be the supreme reality of our church. That's what makes a church. It is that the living Christ is there in the midst of them. And so as he comes and he is standing in the midst and he sees all things and he knows all things, the Lord Jesus care and love. It manifests itself in him telling this particular church those particular things about its spiritual growth and declension. And as he first comes to them, he comes with a word of commendation. Notice he says, I know your works. There's nothing hidden from the Lord Jesus. He knows every single thing about every single church. And he says to this church, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. He's he's actually gonna set out three things in his commendation. He's number one gonna commend them for their their passion or their zeal for ministry. I know your works. They are they are zealous. He he says that, that you have not grown weary, that they they were laboring diligently, they were a fervent church. If you looked at the church in Ephesus, you probably wouldn't see any deficits. They, they were passionate in their ministry. They were persevering in the faith, probably in the midst of some sort of attacks against them in the culture. And, and the Lord Jesus says, I know your patient endurance, your, your perseverance. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. By the way, if you have any friends that are deconstructing, get as far away from whatever they are telling you. Because the Lord Jesus wants you to persevere in the faith. Jesus is commending zeal in ministry, perseverance in the faith. He says to them, I know you're enduring patiently. I know that you're bearing up for my name's sake. Um, Those are good things for any of our churches. We would be zealous in our service that we would be persevering in the midst of a culture that is increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel. Those things are pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Um, As I was preparing this, and I'm saving that third commendation for you in just a moment, but when I was preparing this, I thought about how often I'm discouraged when I read the, um, I call them opportunistic digital hirelings on Twitter, who are always trashing the church. Where the church has failed, how awful the church is, how many people have been hurt by the church. Yeah, people have been hurt by the church, but you know what? It's Christ's church. And the Lord Jesus doesn't come and just throw the gauntlet down, because if somebody throws the gauntlet down, people are going to pick it up and use it against you. He comes in love, and he comes commending them for all the things they're doing right. And then he says, he commends them, and this is most important for us to consider. He commends their love of purity. Purity. In the church, passion, perseverance, purity. Notice this. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. And, and notice this. He says back in verse two, he says, I know that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. This was a church that loved sound doctrine. You know, we live in a day when the better part of professing Christians could care less about theology And that's devastating because Jesus cares about it. Because it's his church. And if you want to know how important sound doctrine is, you listen to the commendation of Christ to the church in Ephesus. And not just sound doctrine. He says, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now, I want to encourage us tonight as we continue on in the churches, the respective churches that the Lord has put us in, that you would be committed, that you would commit to being zealous in ministry and service, that you would be committed in persevering, and that you would most certainly commit to loving what is true and right and good, sound doctrine, sound living. Um, A church that gives those things up will not be a church for very long we're sitting here tonight celebrating what happened in 1973 because the Mother Church gave those things up and increasingly gave those things up and increasingly gave those things up. I was reading uh, in preparation uh, Jack Williamson's first address at our first General Assembly in 1973, and he's explaining in that why we broke from the Mother Church that they loved so much and why This denomination was formed, and the only reason we exist is because of this, God's mercy and the conviction of these men. And listen to this. Jack Williamson said the issue was that the church we loved, the old mainline denomination, the church we loved as an organization is not first. Listen carefully. He said the church we loved is not first. By the way institutional churches often are number one for people. I had a friend that said to me many years ago, he said, Nick, people will leave their spouse, change their job, and move to another country before they leave a bad church. Jack Williamson said the issue was that the church we loved as an organization was not first. Christ is first. He said, therefore, once Christ is no longer king and lord in a church, then that church can have our loyalty. He said, long ago, faithful men saw our former church losing her first love. Um, This is a very real thing. The better part of denominations do not remain faithful for over 100 years. That's just a historical fact. And we would be arrogant to think that the PCA is just going to go on and we're just all going to rock our way on without taking serious heed. Christ is commending these things. We would be wise to listen to him. But then the Lord is criticizing. Notice verse four. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Now, the church in Ephesus is demonstrably a cold Orthodox church. And I understand why so many people revolt against doctrinaire churches because it it is often the case that churches that exalt doctrine to such a place of importance and it ought to hold such a place of importance oftentimes are cold and lifeless. That's just a fact. Um, That's why we had men like Jonathan Edwards praying for awakening, why there were concerts of prayer across the globe between ministers in the 18th century praying for awakening. It wasn't that The churches had given up sound doctrine so much as they were lifeless and cold. There was no spiritual vitality. They had left their first love. The Lord Jesus wants you and me to love him supremely as we did when he first converted us. As we were singing tonight, I was thinking back. I was converted out of so much darkness, drugs, rebellion, sexual immorality. And when the Lord converted me, I couldn't get through a hymn without just weeping every time. That's what the first love looks like, realizing what Christ has done, realizing that when Jesus is weighed down in agony in the garden and he's sweating great drops of blood, it's because of my sin. It's because of your sin. It's because of his love. That he wore the crown of thorns because he loves you. The Apostle John says at the beginning of this book, to him who loved us and gave himself for us. When the Apostle Paul thinks about his Christianity, the chief way that he can express it in Galatians 2 is that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Paul never got over the love of Christ. The Apostle John never got over the love of Christ. That's why he's known as the Apostle of Love. The Apostle John saw something in Jesus, so wonderful in his love toward him that he felt comfortable enough in leaning back on him and laying his head on his chest in the holiest and purest affection. Um, That's, I really believe, what Jesus is talking about here. When the Lord Jesus comes to restore Simon Peter and he comes with that threefold, do you love me? And, and you, feel, you feel Peter's, you feel his emotions. And at the end, he seems almost frustrated. You know that I love you. That, that what marks a Christian more than anything else is a true and real, a mysterious, a mystical love to Jesus because of Christ's love for us. And that can be lost. And that can be lost. In our experience, we can know that at the beginning of our Christian life. But as the years roll on and the hardships come and we allow ourselves to love things in the world more, the scales begin to tip. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish Presbyterian, in his sermon on this passage said that the greatest enemy to keeping and nurturing love of Christ is love to the world. We know that, don't we? I don't need to know anything about you to know that that's true, because I know it's true of me. And the Lord Jesus is coming with this one criticism, and it's so significant that Jesus says if they will not remember, if they will not repent, if they will not return, the church will not last. And I'm going to say tonight, if the PCA and our respective churches Don't take these things to heart. Christ will remove the lampstand. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus never said, no local church will ever cease to be. And we know this because in just a matter of years, Christ took the lampstand out and there was no church in Ephesus. And that's a sobering thought for us. And we, are all, we are all serving the Lord in our generation. And we are, we are seeking to live for him in, in all the different ways that he calls us to. And we're seeking to give ourselves to his church and to the local churches that we're a part of. And if we don't want our labors to be in vain, then we need to examine ourselves and we need to say, where in my heart are my affections and have they waned in regard to love to Christ now here's the good news Jesus isn't saying all this because he was done with that church Jesus was saying this because he loved them because he was full of grace and because he loves and because he's full of grace he says the hard and difficult things by the way if you go to churches and you or you send your children to churches one day And they don't ever preach the hard things. Tell them to leave those churches. The Lord Jesus says the hard things so that you will be safe. So that his church will be healthy. And so that we will all, we will all be marching forward into his arms and glory. Um, Listen to this. Horatius Bonar, another great Scottish Presbyterian, said this. He said, Christ is faithful to notice sin and to warn against it. Just as he is faithful to pardon it when confessed. His holy eye detects the sin. His loving, tender heart mourns over it. There's no anger. There's no fury here. All is gentleness and grace. Isn't that marvelous? Even that hard word, all is gentleness and grace. Bonar says he mourns over Ephesus for leaving her first love. He feels these things profoundly. He is not indifferent to them. As if he did not care whether his lamps burn bright or not, he mourns over every sin he longs to supply every need. Now, I want us to just briefly consider Christ's counsel to this church. He's given his commendations, he's given his criticism, now he gives them counsel. Notice he says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Now, there are three things Christ tells them. What's the remedy? Remedy? Harry Reader always does this. Remember, repent, return. Remember, remember your first works. Remember your first love. Repent of your coldness and indifference to Christ. And return to the Savior. Simple, direct counsel. And what Jesus is saying is, if I feel in my heart that that I am not loving the Lord Jesus as I ought to, that my affections and desires for him as the Savior are not what they should be, that I need to go to him and say, Lord, kindle in my soul. Kindle again that love that I had when you manifested your love to me. Make me to understand more of that love. Help me to meditate often on the cross. I love this, by the way. Uh, From the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I was thinking about... Uh, What does it mean to remember? What does it mean that I'm to remember that first love? And I love this verse. The hymn writer says, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorn on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. It is impossible for us to meditate on what Christ did for us. And not to have love to him kindled. It is absolutely impossible. But it is very possible to push him out of our minds. Not to think about him. Not to focus on his grace and his love and his redemption. And so we are to remember. We are to repent. We are to go to him and say, Lord, I have loved the things of the world too much. By the way, if we don't do this, and we love the world more than we love Christ, our churches will not last. How do I know that? Jesus says that. He says that. And we are to return to him. Now, the Lord does something very interesting here. And I want to draw your attention to verse 7. At this point, he stopped addressing the church collective, corporate. And now he makes his address to individuals. And that's so important for us to get because what the Lord Jesus is saying here, he's saying tonight... And as he's addressed all of you collectively, now he addresses us as individuals. And he says this in verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, what is Christ doing? He recognizes that there are going to be people who harden their hearts and shut their ears to this. And yet he knows there will be others who will have their ears wide open to hear it, to receive it, and to act on it. And so what Christ says to the church in Ephesus, he says to you all as individuals tonight and to me. He says, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. And then, I love this. He's given the warning that if they don't do this, he's going to come quickly and remove their lampstand. But then notice the promise at the end. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, this is... So spectacular. Here, the Apostle John is, is putting before us, and Christ is putting before us, the idea that, that he is the last Adam. He, he is the last Adam to the fight and to the rescue. He is the one who came conquering and to conquer. He is the one, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when God exiled Adam and Eve out of the garden, he put two angels with flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life to say that there was no hope of eternal life. In in human strength or ability, there was no way to get back to the tree of life. It was absolutely, it was absolutely off limits. And yet what happens in the history of redemption is that the Lord Jesus comes as the last Adam and he goes through the flaming sword of God's justice. And Zechariah says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one who is my companion. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And God the Father, as it were, takes that flaming sword when Christ hangs on the cross. And he extinguishes his holy flaming wrath that we deserve in the soul of Jesus. So that the way to paradise is open for us. There's a great hymn by Ann Cousins who also transcribed Samuel Rutherford's The Sands of Time are Sinking. And, and this hymn is called, O Christ, What Burdens, Bow Thy Head. And there's a line in that about the flaming sword. And, and um, uh, she says, Jehovah bade his sword awake, O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, its flaming sword, must slake. Thy heart, its sheath, must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. Now sleeps that sword for me. Now if that doesn't make us love the Lord Jesus, I got nothing else for you. He took all the wrath that we deserve for all eternity. And he says to the one who conquers, I'm going to grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Um, I'm not going to be alive in 50 years. I'm sure about that. But it may be that the PCA is here in 50 years, and it may not be here in 50 years. But what we can be sure of is to the one who overcomes, after America has come and gone, after the PCA has come and gone, After every other denomination, every other local church, every other kingdom, every other nation for all eternity, those who overcome by faith in Christ, who are washed in the blood of the lamb and have returned to him as their first love are going to eat of the tree of life forever. And there's not going to be any criticism of the church in that day. We're going to have a perfect church of those that love Christ and who are feeding on him for all eternity. I hope that you'll be encouraged by this. I hope that you'll examine your own churches together. That you would ask yourself, what would Christ's assessment be of, of our church? I hope that you would listen carefully to the things that he's commended because they're vital. That you would be passionate in your service, that you would persevere under difficulties that you would love the purity of doctrine and practice, but that you would make it a priority to ensure that from the heart, the Lord Jesus is your first love. Because if he's not, he's going to remove our lampstands. And if he is, he's going to give us to eat of the tree of life forever. Forever. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths, and we acknowledge that we need them. We do pray, our Lord Jesus, that you would have mercy on us. Where we have turned from you as our first love, would you give us grace to remember, to repent, and to return to you? Would you please stir up in our minds and our hearts the greatness of your love for us that led you to the garden, that led you to the tree, that led you to to the tomb and that has led you to the throne. And so would you have mercy on us? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would protect our churches, that you would not remove our lampstands. We pray that you would make us a people who collectively have ears to hear and hearts that understand. Would you make us a people that together are marching forward that we might overcome and that we might eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. And so our God, would you have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name.